All right, this is a real estate podcast, but I made sure to get the number one Austin, Texas restaurant recommendation from my buddy Lincoln Edwards, private equity, Harvard Business School, Austin, Texas, all impressive buzzwords associated with Lincoln and his background. The real estate magic is this. Lincoln has created one of the most efficient flywheels I have seen in the investment space. He has a wholesale arm, which feeds his fix and flip business. That fix and flip business feeds his media arm, Austin Flipsters on YouTube, and the media arm circles back to feed the wholesale business. I love a whale-oiled machine. Buckle up and enjoy the flywheel ride. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. I'm joined today by Lincoln Edwards, principal at Houndstooth Capital Management, a firm based in Austin, Texas. In addition to real estate, Lincoln has a healthy background in the private equity space, having led a fund which acquired over $100 million in assets. He is also a Harvard Business alum, so the credentials are there. Lincoln, thank you so much for joining. Hey, what's going on, Dalton? Thanks for having me, man. For sure. So we have a lot of business to get to, but I I have a completely selfish question to ask first. Austin, Texas, somehow I've been to Dallas a dozen times. I have never been to Austin. I'm going to be there for my first time in a month. What is the cannot miss place? I have a restaurant, water and hole. What's the wreck? Well, if you feel like waiting for four hours, you got to get some Franklin barbecue best barbecue place in the world. It, it is typically about a four-hour wait. If you don't feel like waiting for four hours, I'll send you down to Black's Barbecue. It is, I'll call it the second best barbecue, but significantly shorter wait to maximize your time here. I like the, the time value proposition trade-off there. Yes. That's what people ask. People ask if Franklin's is, is the best. The answer is yes. A better question is it is it worth the wait? And the answer to that is I don't know. I think I think maybe not. Maybe you're better served at Blacks. I like it. I like the approach. So thank you for the first official Austin recommendation. Now I want to pick your brain for the next bit. So we mentioned the private equity background. You and I chatted about this a little bit. So talk to me how you moved from that industry over into real estate investing. How'd you get your start? Yeah, well, my you know my very first venture into real estate was right out of college. I was doing the house hacking thing. I, I basically bought a house in Houston, Texas. I was working in oil and gas, and I just rented out rooms to my buddies. And that was in 2007. That's back before I went to business school. And when I left to go to business school, that was in 0809. And I, I was just thrilled to get out of that house. I thought, oh, I dodged a bullet. I, I, I broke even on the thing and got my rent paid for a couple of years. And I, I didn't think that I would be back in real estate after that. I wasn't necessarily looking into it, but I came on with a a real estate private equity shop here in Austin after school and and started buying up commercial real estate and learned by doing it, at least on the the real estate side there. And and we bought up a a bunch of property while I was there before I ventured out on my own and started Houndstooth. So that's how I got into the world and and real estate, you know, it keeps kind of pulling me back in. Yeah. You were describing to me your business model, and I, I kind of, I think of a flywheel, right? Whenever I think of your business model, you talked about how 
and tell me a little bit about how this happened. Was this always the game plan? Was it the ABZ game plan? But really, you have this great model of a wholesale business, which feeds a flip business, which feeds a media business. And then it's just this massive rinse and repeat cycle for folks listening, if you hop on YouTube, Austin Flipsters, that's what to search for. Talk to me about how did that happen? Was it always the plan or did one thing lead to the next? Yeah, kind of one thing led to the next. I started out just with my own capital that I, I made flipping houses and started small, one, two, three. And then you know I quickly figured out so much of the time was going into the acquisition side and you know the marketing to find properties, all that work would sort of wither on the vine once I shifted my focus to the flips. So as we scaled up, you know, hired folks to help on the project management side of the house renovations. But, you know, I started thinking, really, we need a wholesale business to kind of keep the acquisition funnel going so that we've got projects to flip when that capital becomes available through the sale or refinance or, or whatever. And then we also capitalize on those opportunities that we're creating and feed some deals to other investors here locally. So that was the first two kind of components of that flywheel you described, which is, you know, wholesale is the acquisition arm for the, the flip and it makes a little money on its own. The media component was, man, sort of stumbled into that. I kind of went down the rabbit hole on social media and this was uh, three, four years ago and realized, you know, it wasn't just cat videos or whatever on YouTube. I was so amazed people were building real businesses because you read a headline that said such and such made, you know, millions of dollars on their YouTube channel. I could not figure that out. I went down the rabbit hole and I figured out, man, there's really, there's people doing, it's the wild west out there. It's sort of a land grab for attention. So, you know, I, I, I thought, man, I wonder who's doing HGTV on, on YouTube. There's got to be somebody claiming that. And it was, it was a ghost town. So, you know, my partner, uh, Lauren and I, who, who run, who are on the channel together, we brainstormed and said, well, why not us? And it was a little bit naive because we didn't know exactly what we we're doing, but we thought at a minimum, you know, maybe we could get some free materials donated or whatever and, and lower the cost basis for our projects. And we basically started filming our renovation projects and, and putting them up on YouTube. And it was sort of an experiment and it really grew and grew and, and the audience, you know, came together and all of a sudden we, we, we started getting lots of opportunities from the YouTube channel. And that really is kind of how we backed into this flywheel model where, you know, the wholesale feeds the flip business. The flip business really is producing the stories, the content for the media channel. You know, that's the story that we're telling is the, the renovation project. But then the, the actual social media component turns around and feeds our wholesale business because now we're getting leads based on the YouTube videos, people that are selling their house, other investors, that gets fed right back into the wholesale model. And it, you know, like you said, it's kind of a flywheel that, that each component feeds the next. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so three, four years ago, you started that and kind of, like you said, an early adopter I feel like the landscape of real estate investors on YouTube three, four years ago, way less crowded than today, right? Today, I think it's everybody and their brother type situation. How would you go about it differently if you were starting the media arm today versus four years ago? I feel like you would have to really claw to have a different competitive advantage. And I feel like that's tough. Man, that's a great question. So I would probably either not do it today 
Or if I was going to do it today, I would, I would start out on TikTok and not on YouTube. There's just a lot more traction. It's kind of what YouTube was several years ago, where there's is a more open landscape. But that's where we started. And you know, the, the thing that I would do again, that we consciously decided to do, which was to not be a real estate investing focused channel first, or at least not primarily focus on the investment and the financial piece, but rather to be entertainment first and then have you know sort of layers of engagement with the folks who want to talk uh, investing. And basically, the reason we did that is because we got in front of a much broader audience. YouTube liked us more, right? It could put us in front of people with a, a lot broader interest, not just people that are niching down into the nitty gritty, the numbers and details of the project. So we can entertain anybody on the platform. And then for the people that want to engage with us further on, on you know, actually doing business, they're there too, but it, it's eyeballs that we, we might not have had the opportunity to be in front of in the first place if we were niched down. And I, I'd probably do that again. That's, it's been a great strategy. I haven't thought about it, but it sounds like the common sense, maybe not the common sense, just the optimal approach, right? Like the chief piece in any media arm needs to have some entertainment factor. Then all of the rest can follow. So that makes complete sense. I feel like an old man. I was talking with my wife, I think last night or the night before. I was like, I still have never been on TikTok. I'm 28 years old. I think on the inside, I'm like 70. I just don't know what the kids are doing these days. But that's, uh, yeah, go go to a platform that isn't as saturated as YouTube, which is kind of the OG in the, the video space. That's how all these platforms work, you know, for people that are interested in social media. That, that's really the way to do it is, is ride the wave of a new cresting platform, get in there early, and then, you know, build an audience one place and you can kind of port it over and take it with you. I remember TikTok used to be musically a few years ago. My my niece brought it to a family Christmas, showed us all, did a little dance, and we we're like, "Well, that was cute." We got bored of it in about you know fifteen minutes, and then here years later, it's this whole thing again. It's changed its name to TikTok, and it's the fastest growing social media platform. And that's how these things work: is they start with this niche audience, you know, preteen girls dancing around or doing lip syncing, whatever they it is they do. But if you go down the rabbit hole now on TikTok, there's real estate investing. There's all the other niches that you would find on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, you know, but that real estate is there for the taking and the audience building, you know, it's much faster over there. But, you know, to the uninitiated, yeah, it seems like what is it that you actually use this app for? How is it that I'm supposed to monetize TikTok? And yeah, you've kind of got to be a, you got to be a little bit of a pioneer, a little bit of a cowboy on some of these things. You're a smart guy, so you may have pushed me over the edge to download TikTok and, and take a gander. Just don't, don't dance on there. Don't think you've got to dance. If I do, you'll be the first one to get a video of it, I promise. So let's talk about your core business, right? The real estate investment arm of it. What does an average project look like for you? Do you play in a, a relatively specific space or multifaceted? Um, yeah, I mean, we've got kind of a sweet spot of deals that are kind of your average fix and flip projects in the core Austin market. And that's stuff that you're, you're getting into for three to $500,000. And hopefully you're exiting, you know, six to $900,000. Those numbers have bumped up here in the last year, which we can talk about. We've strayed outside of that range up to the sort of what I would call the you know, the lower end of the luxury market. So, you know, the one to two, $3 million price point. 
And we've, we've dabbled a little bit in some of these tertiary markets around Austin that have seen a lot of growth and you know, lot lower price points, a little bit more accessible. And the lowest priced investment we made, we bought a house for $5,000 in Brownwood, Texas, which is out in West Texas, kind of where I grew up. And uh, we literally, I, the only reason I bought that was specifically for the YouTube channel. And I, I thought, ah, you can't pass up the chance to you know, clickbait people with a $5,000 house. And sure enough, it's our biggest watch video. It really has nothing to do with our actual business model. It wasn't, it wasn't much of a money maker, so to speak. It was a fine little project, but it, you know, it's maybe worth $120,000 now that we've spent 80 or 90 on it or whatever. But man, talk about a lead gen funnel for, for all this other stuff. So. So you mentioned you've gotten into or have done some projects in the one, two, three million dollar price point. Walk me through the differences from a real estate investor standpoint of, you know, call it workforce housing, average housing in an area versus a project that's in the kind of low few millions. What are the differences in planning and execution? Do you see one is much more materially riskier than another? A lot of questions there. Kind of walk me through. It's a balancing act to be able to kind of span those price points because you can't always use necessarily the same crews, the same material. You got to be a lot more meticulous, at least in our market, because your buyer pool is much thinner for the luxury properties and much more, you know, picky, much more discerning. You know, so any any little imperfections, or certainly if the property has any sort of big things detracting from it, you know, busy road, or if it backs up to you know some commercial or whatever it is, those can be real deal killers. Whereas uh, you know in the in the labor force, you know it, you can overcome some of that with maybe a, you know ten percent discount or whatever. So you re- you really got to do quite a bit more planning. And you know for flips in particular, the best ones in our market for for hitting that price point are really in the older neighborhoods. You know. 1930s and 40s build that are uh, you know infill neighborhoods where it's sort of people that want to be near the city but they want a luxury property and they also want a little bit of that kind of vintage feel those do the best otherwise it's a lot of new builds which is a space we haven't played in as much but now you're talking you know kind of big mammoth 3000 square foot and up you know modern construction which is you know a different market altogether yeah have you done any projects like that or not getting into it. You know, we haven't at the moment. We've done a few projects where we uh, we got plans and permits on a lot for something like that, and then have sold that off to other developers that specialize in the new construction. And frankly, with now kind of with our business model, we're using the social media to drive the whole rest of it. And it's at least I haven't got my mind around a compelling way to sort of show a before and after on a new build in a way that that is entertaining to watch. And that sounds sort of like a you know a weird uh, tail wagging the dog thing on your business model, but it's really true. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So yeah, you kind of already started dropping some Hansel and Gretel morsels on the Austin market. So let's chat a bit about it. I think over the last year, year and a half, probably no market outside of... You probably have New York, San Francisco, and Austin, Texas being the three most talked about real estate markets, New York and San Francisco, you know, for different reasons than Austin, right? Austin has been 
strapped to a rocket ship and set straight up to the moon. I saw a stat a month or so ago that said from May 2020 to May 2021, appreciation in the Austin market averaged 36% over a 12-month span. Absolutely ridiculous numbers. So let me start off with this question. How much of that and it could be all some, how much of that, let's call it 36% appreciation is going to stick? Do you think that whenever things calm down and normalize, it's just going to plateau where it stops? Or do you think there's going to be a material pullback? Well, you know, a lot of that hype has been driven by our YouTube channel directly. There you go. Everybody who owns real property in Austin needs to start paying you. No, you know, I definitely, there's no way that is sustainable, that that rate on a long-term basis, right? I mean, like you say, it's it's absolutely insane. And, you know, you quoted the, the May to May numbers, but this spring from January 1 through the end of May was the most insane real estate market I've ever experienced, you know, houses getting 20, 50 offers, 100, 200, 300 over asking price and, you know, buyers that just, you know, submitting dozens of offers and and couldn't get one. And that market has already cooled. So you're not, you're not seeing 20 offers on a house. There's still super low days on market, but, you know, I think that was a confluence of kind of the economy opening back up, you know, it becoming clear that, you know, the world wasn't ending, printing money like crazy. And, you know, there's at the exact same moment, all that's happening. Now this demand for, you know, premium real estate, people are spending more time there. And, you know, people moving from other markets, like you mentioned, San Francisco and New York into Texas. And I think that was the perfect storm for that moment. But going forward, I certainly don't see prices taking a a dip in Austin. I'll say that because, the demand is still so outstripped by the supply, you know, you can't help but see that that market continue to appreciate. Now, it could be wrong there, but it just doesn't seem to be letting up. And it seems like every single day there's a new announcement. This morning, there was an announcement uh, by, I think it was Samsung, $17 billion investment out in Taylor, which is a, sort of a suburb outside of town. And that was, like I said, that was just the one this morning. It seems like it's a never ending string of corporate announcements, folks moving here. And yeah, I think for who knows how long it it seemed like maybe Austin was like, uh, you know, the best kept secret in the country. And, And these folks from the coast have really discovered it, embraced it. And, you know, I think the whole pandemic and, you know, all the restrictions people have been experiencing in other markets has really, you know, highlighted some of the drawbacks to other markets and, you know, accentuated, you know, a lot of what Texas and Austin has to offer specifically. And I think the genie's out of the bottle in terms of the demographic shifts in terms of people moving around the country and the demand for the types of housing and the types of cities that they want to live in. And I, I think that bodes well for Austin in the long term. Yeah, and Joe Rogan moved to Austin from California, so it seems like seems like that was the tipping point. Joe moved there, and then everybody in California followed suit. So you talked about tertiary markets, right? So let's take Austin off the table for a minute, Austin proper. What cities and towns outside of Austin are you looking at or would you recommend people to look at from an investment standpoint? 
I'm super bullish on the market south of Austin, all the way to San Antonio and west of Austin. I think Austin is, if you know the market well, I mean, it, it sprawls to the north, but going down south towards San Antonio, you've got the I-35 corridor. The demographics of the state in general are continue to grow over the next 10, 20 years. And, you know, I think that strip between these two major metros has no choice but to sort of fuse. If you know the Dallas-Fort Worth market, you know, the places in between there like Arlington or Irving or Frisco, it's sort of the same effect. It is it, kind of fused into one major metropolis. And I think you're going to see a continued push for that south of Austin. Specifically, I like markets that have uh, that are in that path that also have uh, some character and some sort of uh, a, a tourist vibe. I think they make great investments because you know you can hold them, you could turn them into Airbnb. So you know, I specifically like the New Braunfels market, which is on I thirty five between here and San Antonio. I own a property down there. Wimberley is a smaller town, sort of on that on that same path. It's very cute, artistic. You've got a river running through it a lot of tourist action. And then west of town, Dripping Springs has been a bedroom community to Austin that's been growing like crazy. You've got a million wineries and breweries and distilleries out there. And Deep Eddie Vodka is out there. Tito's Handmade Vodka is out there. And a whole host of breweries and spots that are kind of you know, a gathering point for families to come hang out. And it's kind of developing a tourist market out there. It's just a hot market that was a sleepy little town 20 years ago. And, you know, I'm really bullish on, on Dripping Springs as well. I Shout out to Tito's Vodka. We need to get a sponsorship for your YouTube channel and this podcast. And I promise I'll... Yeah, bleep them out. Bleep them out until they send us a check, if you don't mind. That's <laughs> true. There you go. Good idea. Smart businessman. That's the, that's the HBS coming out in you. So short-term rentals, you brought that up. How is the short-term rental market in Austin? I imagine it has to be kind of as we've gotten back to travel and stuff opening up this summer, explosive, probably just like every other part of the Austin market. Is that the case? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Austin is sort of a, a blue island or blue oasis in the middle of a red state. And so some of the policies you see in California, they get replicated in Austin. And that can manifest in some ways that make it hard to develop. Zoning laws need an update here in, t in town. And another manifestation of that is restrictions on, on short-term rentals that the city's tried to place on property owners. So there, it is a booming market for those who have a permit. I'm not a lawyer, but I can refer you to, there, there was a court of appeals case that where some short-term rental owners uh, sued the city of Austin. And my interpretation, again, I'm not a lawyer. I've read the, uh, that court opinion and it basically you know, struck down the city of Austin, but they still continue to limit the licensing of short-term rentals in this market, which in my opinion is in direct violation of that court order. But don't tell them I said that, refer that out to your lawyer, because I think it's going to come to a head because it's an unnecessary regulation. And I think that that market is, it would absolutely explode. And it'd be a game changer for property owners in the city, you know, to keep uh, properties from turning over as frequently as they do, give people another option to monetize a property or get a little bit of cash flow. Your only option at the moment is, you know, long-term rental for, for most properties that, that are, you know, single family homes that you can't get a license on those. And, you know, the, the dyna dynamics of the rental market, such as they are in Austin, it's really hard if you're buying new today 
to be able to charge enough rent to cover a mortgage with, you know, without just a huge down payment on, on it. And, you know, I think that has a lot of negative repercussions for, for renters in this city. You know, they're on the one hand, you know, you could say they're getting a good deal on rent, but then, you know, I think it, it sort of keeps houses out of the rental pool that might otherwise be in it. So I'd love to see more short-term rentals, but, you know, when you go outside of the uh, confines of Austin, that's when you can start getting into these uh, short-term rental plays in some of these other markets that I mentioned, Wimberley, Dripping Springs, Braunfels, and San Marcos. And those are great markets, you know, arguably as good or in some cases better than, than the Austin market. Yeah. Tax it, take the money off the top, let short-term rentals fly. Yeah, you'd think it'd be a great, it'd be a great source of tax revenue for the city, there's a lot that we could do with it. I think it'd be a boon. And, you know, it's really at odds with what we're trying to do as a city. You know, we, we've invested in things like a Formula One racetrack. You know, we've got the Austin City Limits Music Festival, South by Southwest. We've got the University of Texas football attracting a lot of people. And we've built a big, shiny convention center downtown. You know, Austin should be a welcoming city. We, we should be welcoming guests. And, you know, we, we should be able to have flexible inventory to meet that demand. And who better to benefit, you know, from tourism and visitors in our city than the homeowners in, in Austin, Texas, and people that are willing to in, invest in, in real estate here and open up their doors to visitors, you know, I, I'd love to see more of that. Yeah, that common sense sounded to me. So what do we leave on the table, Lincoln? What here's here's one more quick question. Is there anything trend or habit-wise on real estate investors that you're seeing crop up that you just do not agree with? You don't think it should be going on? Any practices, anything? Well, you know, I would say a couple things. You know, our channel on YouTube being focused on fix and flips, you know, a lot of times we'll get people saying, oh, no, you should you know, burn method or refinance or Airbnb and flips or taxes, ordinary income. It's sort of this debate. I don't really see it as a debate between which method is better. I think it, everybody should have sort of a portfolio, hold some, flip some for income. So that's that's something that we run up against that doesn't really make sense. We're, we're not just, uh, I'll only flip, you know, we own rentals, we own uh, Airbnbs. I'm bullish on the Airbnb thing since we were talking about that. I'm, I'm trying to add more of those to the portfolio. You know, you're, you're seeing these folks now that are doing the sort of the rental arbitrage, renting out real estate, and then turn around to Airbnb it. And that's, I don't know. I don't want to say I don't agree with that. That seems like a, a tricky game. And, you know, I think, look, for somebody starting out, you know, if you can pull that off, if you can swing and do it professionally and Managed property uh, might be a good way. I think long term, it doesn't, you know, you don't get any of those, you know, the benefits of owning the real estate that, you know, we've come to know and love, the, you know, the appreciation and the appreciation and getting long term fixed uh, interest rate debt and, and all that good stuff. So, you know, I hope folks that are getting into the market that way, it's, you know, people starting out that can transition into traditional home ownership, but, you know, got to respect their hustle. For sure. I mean, far be it for me to cast stones at something new and novel that I would have probably never thought of. But I agree with you. It feels like in that strategy, you could be ripping out the core foundational known pieces of real estate investing, kind of that 101. And that's just TBD on how that ship sails, I think, in the, in the long term. I think that's also a limited play because 
you know, the property owners that you're renting from, eventually you're going to realize, hey, these people are they're providing a service effectively and capturing more of that upside than I'm otherwise getting. So if I'm going to lease to somebody that's going to turn around, why not just, you know, hire my own uh, management company? Let me run it as an Airbnb. And I think it's probably more old school owners that are saying, yeah, sure, I, I can't be bothered to mess with this this new short-term rental thing. But if somebody else can figure it out and they want to just pay me my fixed rent every month, go for it. But I, I think they're going to get wise to that and more and more just going to start hiring that out directly or or you know, diversify the rental mix of uh, something like a multifamily, you know, apartment building where you know you got some long terms, maybe you got some short terms in there to to offset. We'll see. That sounds right. A hey, Lincoln Edwards, principal at Houndstooth Capital Management. Go check out the YouTube page, Austin Flipsters, F L I P S T E E R S. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And follow, you can follow, uh, you can follow our journey on Instagram as well at Austin Flipsters on there. If you want to follow, uh, follow along in uh, real time on all the projects we got going on here and, uh, yeah, check us out. Beautiful. Hey, Lincoln, thank you so much for joining. Thanks a lot for having me, Dalton. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.